Hello, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Anxiety Book Club. This month, we're talking with Eowyn Alstrom, a mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor and an assistant director for community and online programs at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University. Eowyn has been practicing mindfulness for nearly a quarter century and is a veteran retreat goer and leader, as well as the author of a forthcoming volume of poems about mindfulness. Thanks for being here, Eowyn. It's a pleasure, Josh. Thank you for the invitation. Sure. So full disclosure, I know Eowyn through the first ever mindfulness uh, silent meditation retreat that I attended in December of 2018 at the Spirit Fire Retreat Center in Massachusetts. And I've been sitting with Eowyn on and off on her Monday nights online meditation circles for, for quite a while now. And uh, it's been such a, such a pleasure having you as a guide through this uh, world of mindfulness. Well, thank you. So, yeah, so the podcast for the past, this is the ninth episode. It's talked about so many different topics about mental health including, of course, anxiety and disordered eating, um, disordered sleeping, self-kindness, self-love, OCD, just like all kinds of topics. But I think one of the narratives or one of the themes that undergirds a lot of the therapies out there and a lot of the techniques for improving mental health or coming to grips with some of the voices in your head is mindfulness and meditation. These sort of two words that start with M that are really intertwined and um, are definitely a big part of, of my life and how I hope to cope with uh, being a human on earth. But we haven't had an episode um, expressly directed at those topics. And so I thought, well, Let's have Eowyn. She knows all about this stuff. Help us uh, disentangle some of these concepts. Okay. Yeah. Happy so, to. Yeah. Great. Great. Perfect. Yeah. Well, because, you know, I can't do it alone. Like, I think I know what these topics mean, but <laughs> I feel like our listeners will greatly benefit from hearing from you. So these two M words, mindfulness and meditation, you know, what are they and, and what's the difference between them? Oh, that's a great place to start. I think it's um, not always clear to people what the distinctions are. And as you said, there there's definitely overlap. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start with ancient history or relatively recent history, Josh? Oh, wow. Uh, question for me. You know, I'm the one who asked the question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> No, now I know how it feels to be you. Um, I guess uh, I don't know how to answer that. I I was thinking sort of what people think of when they think of mindfulness about noticing and paying attention. But your your answer about ancient history might be really interesting. So I guess yeah. Well, I can it. I can certainly give you a little bit of each if you like. Um, for a lot of folks, particularly maybe people who are interested in mindfulness from a mental health perspective, 
which I think many people are these days. One useful definition comes to us from a person named John Kabat-Zinn, who is the creator of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, which you mentioned when you were uh, talking about who I am, uh, because I uh, teach that program, and that program is really at the center of everything we do at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University and many other mindfulness programs in healthcare settings and um, public health settings and medical settings have the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program really at their heart. So John Kabat-Zinn developed Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction more than 40 years ago now. And the definition that he developed for mindfulness at that point when he was creating that program is kind of an interesting one. He says that mindfulness is awareness that arises through paying attention moment to moment non-judgmentally or something along those lines. And it's part of what's interesting to me about that definition is that very often the part about awareness gets dropped out. People will quote that definition by saying that mindfulness is paying attention moment to moment non-judgmentally, which may be partly true. But that omission of the first part of what he said, that mindfulness is awareness that arises through paying attention, I find it fascinating that it often gets dropped because in some ways I think it's the more important part of the definition. Um, I can also tell you that a long time ago when I first started practicing meditation and mindfulness meditation particularly, a teacher of mine, when I went to her saying, tell me again what mindfulness is, she told me that mindfulness is a moment of awareness that's unaffected by greed or hatred or delusion. So there's another uh, definition for mindfulness. When she gave me that response to my question, I responded to her by saying something like, oh, I guess I'm having a lot less of that than I thought. <laughs> Because I kind of thought as long as I was paying attention, I was being mindful, you know. But there's something special about the kind of awareness that mindfulness is. It's, it's, it's an awareness that doesn't get hmm, upset by or knocked out of its seat, you could say, by the passing moods of the mind, you know, my wanting something or, or wanting something to go away doesn't diminish my capacity to be awake and aware of that very experience of wanting or not wanting. Okay. Right. So it's a, it's a subtle distinction, I guess, but so maybe like a, if you programmed a computer correctly, they might be able to do the noticing part and, and maybe they could write down everything that they, if they had a brain also, I guess, they could write, they could so write I guess down. They do all now. I don't know. <laughs> well, okay. So okay, let's assume they do. They could write down everything that happens maybe within their brain space. But it, beyond sort of just the rote noticing, there's this emergent property. It, it sounds like this awareness that it also sort of sounds like resilience. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Be, yeah. Because it's, uh, you suggested that it, it doesn't allow you to get knocked off your seat, right? It's sort of robust. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then in response to that, I might say something about the ancient roots of mindfulness. So John Kabat-Zinn, when he was 
creating the mindfulness-based stress reduction program wasn't inventing mindfulness. Mindfulness had already been around for over two millennia. The word he was translating into English as mindfulness comes out of uh, an ancient language from India called Pali, which is the language that the Buddha's teachings were first written down in. So mindfulness has a long history and mindfulness meditation has a long history uh, being practiced by folks in Buddhist and, and Hindu traditions and other traditions as well for, for many, many years. And probably gets interpreted different ways by different people depending on, well, you know, needs and circumstances of, of certain historical periods. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it's not really an easy answer to this question. Well, I think really, Josh, it's like any big word, you know, like a word like wisdom. You know, if I said to you, so, Josh, what what is meant by wisdom? You know, could you answer that question in, in a sentence or love? Yeah. Or compassion. You know, these are these are significant concepts. They're not just um, it's not like saying what what's two plus two. Mm hmm. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a big concept. But I mean, I guess that's why we need at least, you know, one episode of a podcast about it. I hope so. Yeah, I hope I hope that many people who are getting interested in it will spend a lot of time exploring directly for themselves what it means, because the the definition actually probably doesn't matter so much as the experience of it. And I think the word you use resilience, the resilience that it can start to offer us once we get in touch with it. So in mindfulness-based stress reduction, we call it something that's innate. We say we all have the capacity for mindfulness, yeah? Just like we all have a bicep or a foot, you know? Most of us have the good fortune to have bicep and foot. So, but if we don't exercise that bicep, it gets weak, right? It doesn't, it's not going to be strong when we need it. Similarly, mindfulness, if we don't cultivate it, if we don't remember that it's there and intentionally strengthen it, that's the paying attention part. Yeah, intentionally noticing our capacity to notice. Yeah? And that's actually where meditation comes in. You could say that mindfulness meditation is a, a way of intentionally strengthening our innate capacity for mindfulness. So we do something like sit down and give our attention again and again, moment to moment, to breathing in and breathing out. And we do that not because we think that breathing is super special, although maybe it is. I mean, it is keeping us alive after all. But in mindfulness meditation, we, we pay attention to something simple like the breath over and over again and moment to moment because we understand and can experience for ourselves that that process helps strengthen this quality, you could say, or this experience of mindfulness in us. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You've, uh, you're, you're going through all the questions that I've, I've, I have prepared. So this is like a perfect, uh, exploration of this topic. All right. Um, I, I've been thinking about it lately, sort of similarly as, as like reps, like reps you're doing not for your bicep or some other muscle, but for your, your brain, 
brain muscle. I think the brain might be a muscle. So, so you cultivate mindfulness through meditation. There's the other M word there. To make it a little bit more personal, I thought I would offer, because I've taken MBSR. Mm. Um, I took MBSR maybe like the October before the retreat. So this was the fall of 2018. I took it at the University of Miami with uh, two really great instructors. And I noticed for myself, and I, I know we'll, we'll get into benefits, but I want to say for myself personally, it allowed me to be less reactive around family members who otherwise uh, I might have gotten into some kind of disagreement with. Mm-hmm. So there was a period of time where I was living with my parents and it was after MBSR. And I noticed that the frequency of our disagreements uh, had definitely declined. And I attributed a lot of that to mindfulness um, and to the MBSR program. Okay, so here's a question for you. What was happening in those moments when the arguments weren't starting like they used to do? What was occurring within you or in that situation? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great question. So, and this is, yeah, so this is, I think, the where mindfulness gets to really shine in an example like this. So uh, the person I argue with more is my mom, I guess, because we're closer. Mm. And we would start talking about something and some words would trigger me to get annoyed or upset. And I would feel right. So the, even being able to talk about it is, is sort of evidence of the mindfulness. Um, maybe in the past, let's say my trigger word was banana. It's not banana, but let's say it was, <laughs> I would immediately, you know, say no more bananas. Like we can't, we can't deal with this right now, but having done the MBSR, I was able to see the thoughts sort of arrive before, like it gives you that, um, there's that guy who came out of the Holocaust who has that quote about. um, Yeah, Viktor Frankl. Turns out that attribution isn't quite right. Somebody did that, you know, quote sleuthing type thing. It's usually said um, between a stimulus and response, there's a space and in that space lies our freedom or something like that. He didn't quite say that, but he said something to that effect. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm glad you remembered it. Right. So it allowed me to have a a small window in which I could decide to act as I had in the past, which was to get upset and say things I regretted and... I hate bananas. I hate bananas, right? Just <laughs> How can you possibly be talking to me about bananas? <laughs> right. See, it's not a good example. I, I want to make you know, I love the podcast it. relatable. Okay. Yeah, I love it. It's a great example. Right. So it allowed me to pause a little bit and respond in a way that allowed the situation to not become heightened and, and aggressive and angry. Right. And yeah. Okay, so here I want to go back to my first teacher's um, definition of mindfulness. When I asked her all those years ago, she said, you know, this moment of awareness that's unaffected by greed or hatred or delusion, right? I'm hearing some of that in your banana story, you know. So your, your mother says bananas, you know, and you part of what you're noticing is that you don't like bananas, which I would call you know, hatred is a strong word, but it's just a classic term that's a catch-all for anything that we want to push away or run away from, you know. We feel what's called aversion, yeah, toward that 
experience. So you notice that your mother says bananas and then you notice the aversion. You notice, I don't like bananas. But then something really different happens. You're not affected by that aversion in the same way. It doesn't cause you to freak out and yell or whatever. You know, we're, we're playing with this example, but I think you take my point. Yeah. So in a certain way, you're free in that moment of the effects of that dislike. That disliking can't force you to act in some way like it might want you to act if, we're, if we want to personify the, the aversion. Yeah, exactly. So you're not, um, you're not as, you, right, you're free. You're not as hell, you're not as, uh, how do we say this? Like, you're not a prisoner as you were before to the normal sort of stimulus reaction. Exactly. And, and this is a good, um, I'm glad we're getting to this kind of example because, well, you know, I've been teaching MBSR and other mindfulness programs, a whole variety of them, including yoga, by the way, for quite a few years. And um, one of the things I've noticed in the, in the course of doing that is as the concept of mindfulness gets more well-known, you know, people have some idea what mindfulness is, there's a tendency to well, two extremes, one of which is to assume that somehow mindfulness is going to be a, a panacea and that as soon as you start to practice it, somehow you're always going to be happy and never going to be unhappy, you know, that it's going to just fix everything up perfect. So part of what I like about your example is it's not necessarily in your example that you're just feeling awesome. You know, you might still be a little annoyed about bananas even as you're not reacting to that annoyance. And that's actually in some ways the much more important part, right? Not so much that we feel awesome all the time, but that we have capacity to hold a variety of experiences that we have because human beings, not only is mindfulness innate, so are, so are emotions, you know, joy, sadness, anger, fear. Those are natural parts of who we are. So we're not trying to use mindfulness to somehow um, control or get rid of our experiences, but rather to allow us to see it. And then I think really quite naturally, these kind of more helpful responses come around almost all by themselves. Did you feel like you were really doing it when you were not reacting to your normal triggers or did it feel more like it was just a natural process for you? I think I think it made it obvious which course to take, given that I now had options. Mm, right, right. So the options come forward. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas before, you know, I was just an automaton, right? There was no choice but to get angry about the yeah. food. Yeah. So we talk about autopilot. That's a word that's come up in recent years for a lot of people to make it really easy to understand. You know, before you know that you have an innate capacity for mindfulness or awareness that's unaffected by moods, you're on autopilot. I'm on autopilot. As soon as I start to strengthen mindfulness, more and more I can actually be uh, piloting in some way. I can be in the in the driver's seat. Now, being in the driver's seat doesn't mean I have control over everything, right? I can't control the weather. I can't, lots of things I can't control, but at least I get to make choices about whether I want to turn right or left or go straight. 
Yeah, I think that that makes me think of, so I think the original reason that I headed towards the world of mindfulness and meditation was because I had heard that it can help with an anxious mind, which is fitting because, you know, the topic of this podcast in, in large part is about anxiety. I think what you realize, or I should say what I realized is that the thoughts, especially, you know, if you have obsessive compulsive disorder or other anxiety disorders, or, or if you're just a regular human being with a very chattery, noisy mind, mindfulness doesn't erase the thoughts or maybe even make them, maybe it makes them quieter. I don't know, but it, it certainly doesn't get rid of them. But I guess by noticing them, you, you maybe you notice that they're not you or they're not the only voice or, or something like that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Some people talk about the committee in the head, you know, my, my thoughts, uh, have you noticed my thoughts certainly <laughs> often have, there's more than one, um, what's the word even, you know, there's more than one tone to my thoughts on any given subject. You know, I'm not necessarily completely unified in my opinions about anything. So does everyone, do you think, have the committee in there? Uh, well, I haven't met everybody or talked to everybody <laughs> about their minds, but uh, many people I've talked to resonate with that uh, example of the committee in the in, in the head. You know, it's as if in, in, you used to do this word brain, you know, I don't know if it's our brains or it's our minds or what it is, but this sense that somehow... Somewhere inside of us sitting around a, a, a conference room table having a debate is a group of voices, you know, the one who really does want to eat bananas and the ones who, you know, wishes bananas didn't exist and the ones who wants to uh, actually make, I don't know, sandcastles out of bananas, you know, all kinds of different voices within. I think when I started started to get further into mindfulness and started to make some of these realizations about the competing narratives and the committee, as you describe it, I found myself feeling very surprised and a little taken aback that this was all going on inside my head. When when you started getting into mindfulness, and, I'm, and I also sort of want to ask you about how you got into it and why you did, were you surprised at the climate of or the content of the inside of your brain or, or <laughs> what was your reaction to all of it? Hmm. I appreciate the question. Um, thank you, Josh. Um, was I surprised? Well, I think I had a kind of a, a multiplicity of responses to my initial exposure to meditation and, and mindfulness practice. One response, and the one I think I probably identified with most fully, was the sense of uh, like, oh, finally, thank goodness, somebody is finally making sense. Like, yes, this is what's actually happening for me in life, you know. So I, I think maybe to make that response, to contextualize that response, I should say that the framework in which I first learned mindfulness included the very clear description of mindfulness as a, a an approach to ending suffering and so the part of the story about mindfulness is that 
part of life is that there is suffering, which in the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, we use the word stress. You know, we, we say that stress is an, an, another inherent part of life and that stress actually isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just what happens, you know? Things impinge upon us and we have reactions and responses to them. So it was really hearing that, that that's normal and that mindfulness is a way to start to be in a healthier, more free relationship to all of that, that I, I had that response of, yes, this is it. This is the truth. Thank goodness somebody is finally telling me the truth. Um, but another aspect of my initial exposure was definitely uh, similar to what you described, the sense of, oh, wow, look at, look at what my mind is doing. This is really, well, embarrassing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hard to believe that I think some of the thoughts that I think, you know, how, how terrible uh, in moments to see what my mind was doing. I remember I've had the good fortune to practice mindfulness and meditation, lots in silent retreat settings with many wonderful teachers, one of whom said to me at some point, I was complaining about what my mind was doing, you know, it won't quiet down and it's thinking all these grumpy thoughts. I don't know exactly what I was saying to her. Her response to me was, oh, you should hear the thoughts I have to put up with. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought, oh, well, that's really comforting. So it's not just me, you know, who has a lot of thoughts that are painful unpleasant and actually don't seem like me. Yeah. So somehow I'm not identified with those thoughts or I want them to be somebody else or to be gone, you know. And then over time, of course, there's this process of just starting to see thoughts as thoughts. Oh, there's another one coming through, you know, and to also see the reactions to the thoughts, the liking or not liking of thoughts as another part of what's happening and and moving through. Oh, Josh, will you humor me while we're on this topic? Yeah, of course. Because I actually, a little earlier while we were speaking, our conversation was reminded me of one of the poems in this forthcoming, I hope it's in a process of moving toward publication, this volume of poems that I've written about uh, mindfulness that I would actually love just to read to you because it 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 tells in some ways the story of my journey, my relationship with mindfulness and thinking particularly. Yeah, of course. Do you, do you need me to drop a beat or anything or just freestyle it? <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. I can just read it. I just want your permission. <laughs> oh, I was just making a joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay, you ready? The poem is called No Audience. No Audience. And it goes like this. Thought whips up an impressive magic show every time she gets a chance, which is rather often. She drags the breathing body along for the ride, panting and sweaty, roped to the magician's cart like some poor dumb mule. And now, for your excitement, Thought announces in her most impressive voice, a catastrophe. But there's nobody in the audience today except patient awareness, who sits unmoved by the show, attentively observing the sleight-of-hand performance conjured from ordinary sights, sensations, and sounds with a dash of memory for that jazzy, dazzling effect. Patient awareness, sitting alone in the theater, 
wears a smile that just keeps spreading wider across her face. It's that slow warming upturn that comes to the lips of someone who knows she can no longer be fooled. Wow, that was, yeah, it's almost kind of trippy, but that was really, really cool. So, you know, that's my attempt to describe my own experience of this, you know, at first really feeling tricked by my thoughts, endlessly, endlessly tricked. And and there are some ancient texts that do describe thought as being like a magician, you know, able to conjure worlds that don't actually exist. And then slowly yeah. through sitting quietly, patiently aware, starting to see, yeah, um, those are just thoughts. Yeah, that's it's a powerful metaphor. I'm I'm sitting here sort of just imagining the uh the magician in the center of like sub circus tent while patient awareness. Yeah, that's it's too bad for the magician that, you know, no one's paying attention to her, but I guess it's good for, <laughs> for Well, you. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that's a very uh compassionate uh, read. Yeah. Well, great. That's that's awesome. Yeah, I think that's a good a good response to the question of how how the practice came about for you. Um, I have a question that gets a little bit more into the weeds, and it's actually a question I've already asked you before, but I I think it's it, a discussion around it is important. Mindfulness, uh, it seems to stress it, in some ways this idea of acceptance, and even this. Um, form of cognitive behavioral therapy that I've had guests on who specialize in talk about before called acceptance and commitment therapy gets the acceptance part, I think, from from mindfulness. Mm. And I think that there is a tension in the word acceptance, or there was for me, because in the way that I would use it colloquially, acceptance might be confused, I think, with resignation. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to come up with examples before this. So like, let's say you are poor and you don't have, you're a poor child or a student perhaps, and you don't have access to a good school or a a strong community or extracurricular activities. Um, I think we would be careful to make sure that in that case, acceptance wouldn't necessarily mean to like accept your lot in life or give up on your dreams, but but something different. And, and maybe I'll let you um, talk a little bit more about that. Cause I asked you this question. I don't know if you remember it at some point on what, some Monday night a long time ago. And, and you made the concept a bit, a bit clearer to me. Um, so um, what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Forgive me. I can't recall our past conversation, but I, I'm appreciative that you are interested in taking the conversation in this direction because it's very important what you're talking about. Um, there are so many different ways I could I could start to respond. I have to just let my mind choose one. <laughs> so let's put it this way, or let's start with this and see where you want to go. Um, it's as if the only moment you really are being asked to accept in mindfulness is the one that's actually happening right now. And you're asked to accept it because it's happening, not because it's right or wrong or good or bad. 
And that does not, that acceptance of this very moment, as in your example of your situation with your conversations with your mom, it doesn't prevent you from making different decisions than you made the last time you were involved in a similar situation. That's, that's a long, quiet pause there. What do you think about what I just said? It's, it's a good answer. I don't, it's a little counterintuitive to, uh, I guess, those outside of the community. Because someone would say, like, accept the moment. Okay, it's here. Okay, okay, moment, I accept you. Now what? Like, so what does that mean? Well, that's the great question. Now what? Now the person who has accepted this moment has a wide open field of possibilities. Yeah, And so potentially this practice can be, including the, the acceptance part of it, extremely empowering and uh, expanding of, of all of our possibilities, you know. So, oh, let me see. Let me see if I can give you an example that will help to make it easy for people. And maybe this will give you a little bit more of what you were um, asking about in terms of my early relationship with uh, mindfulness practice. So when I first got introduced to practice. I was in my early 20s, maybe approaching my mid-20s. I I had graduated from college and I was looking around. This was quite a long time ago now. I was looking around at the world and my situation, you know, the education that I had had, the systems of culture that were before me, you know, the possibilities of what to do now with this life. And uh, seeing all of that, generally speaking, made me feel a deep sense of despair and the almost conviction that the people who had been instructing me about what life was and how to live it didn't actually know how to be happy. So that was quite um, powerful and oppressive to me. I was looking out at, you know, 50, 60, however many years of life. And seeing that the tools I had gotten from my education and my parents, lovely, kind people doing their best to get me what I needed, not to blame them at all. But, you know, they were part of my upbringing. And they were doing their best to make sure I could fit into this culture yeah, and succeed in this culture. So seeing all that, just like, no way, this doesn't work. You know, getting the what? The money, the house, the success, that doesn't actually make people happy. I could see all around me examples of people who had all of that and were not happy, were clearly not happy. And very rarely an example of someone who had all of that who was actually happy. So, oh my goodness, you know, what am I going to do about that? Am I just going to accept it? Well, yes and no, you know. On the one hand, yes, I can accept my feeling about it and I can accept my perception of it. But what mindfulness began to open up for me was the possibility that I could make different choices and that I didn't have to just buy the package wholesale. I could say, yeah, no, actually, I'm not going to pursue great wealth. I'm not going to pursue massive success. Instead, I'm going to go on a three-month meditation retreat because I think that's actually more valuable to me. You know, so... Through becoming aware of my situation, I began to make choices that to some people seemed quite odd and took my life in a really different direction than certainly my parents probably ever imagined. And, you know, the people in my high school and college 
ever imagined I would go in. And at that point, of course, mindfulness meditation, meditation generally, yoga, these things were not nearly as popular as they are now or as accepted. Uh, but it was the experience of being aware and accepting what was arising that allowed me to start to make different choices about how I was going to live my life. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think that is a good answer. So there was, yeah, accepting that that was the way that you were feeling sort of provided you with the ability to not resign yourself. Yeah. And also that, you know, to some degree, what I was perceiving in the culture was real, but wasn't my, I didn't have to solve it or live within it. I could just go my way, you know, quietly and without fuss. So to press you just one more, once more on this idea. So if mindfulness only asks you to accept the current moment, what does it look like? And maybe we can use the banana example, but what does it look like to not accept the current moment? Oh, I love the question. Yeah, I love the question. So then oh, if we want to use the banana example, you know, it's uh, not accepting the moment is, uh, well, we could, sometimes we refer to it as resistance. Yeah. And maybe that word helps clarify it. Because uh, if you feel into for a moment what resistance is like, it's generally not very spacious or peaceful or enjoyable to resist something, you know. Um, so it, it's, I hate that banana. I can't stand that banana. I have to get rid of that banana. My only option in relationship with that banana is either to kill it or run from it, you know. I, I can't possibly, you know, deal with this. Which is kind of different than, okay, all right, there's a banana here. Okay, there are feelings about the banana here. Okay, now I've got a little space and I can start to contemplate my options in relationship to this uh, this banana. <laughs> this, this may be the first time in history that such a wonderful conversation has taken place around a fruit like this. <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> Um, okay, good. I, I think uh, your mentioning of the word resistance as a foil sort of to acceptance, it does help me to, to understand that. Um, so I want to ask, I want to ask a, a question that I think comes up a lot uh, for people who haven't tried to meditate, and who are scared about uh, getting into it or feel unable. And I, I've heard it a lot, you know, when I talk to my colleagues and stuff like that, it's, it's, uh, oh, I can't meditate. Um, my mind is never clear. Uh, like I'm too restless. Um, I can't, I can't clear my mind. And I think that used to be my definition of what meditation was, was like achieving that state of, of quietness. But going back to our example of like working on your body, like your biceps are doing reps. It seems like the definition of meditation sets the bar much, much, much lower so that um, having a quiet mind is not at all prerequisite. It's merely being distracted and coming back and being distracted and coming back. Um, and I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but does that coincide with, with how, how you understand meditation? Yeah. Yeah. I would actually take it back to uh, the word resistance, you know, that, and I've certainly been, been in this mind state myself, you know, the, I can't meditate mind state. I can't meditate because I am 
uh, too anxious and I'm too distracted and it's just impossible for me to meditate. In, in a way, that those sentences are often, I think, an expression of resistance, resistance to unpleasant experiences that we have when we stop the rush that usually distracts us from seeing and hearing and feeling what's really going on for us. So this is another part of why mindfulness is actually a really big word and not just some jazzy technique that we can use to clean up our acts, you know, or make our lives pretty. Mindfulness and and meditation are, are about beginning to settle into being with our lives as they are. And our lives as they are include moments of enjoyment and moments of displeasure and unpleasant experience. From the point of view of mindfulness, both of those are just fine. They're okay. They're just moments of experience, you know. But it takes a little bit of willingness on our part to experiment with that idea and get comfortable with, you know, backaches and racing minds and and some of the stuff that comes up when we stop to to start to, um, you know, have some, oh, I don't know how to put it exactly, some purchase on what I'm saying, you know. I mean, because the normal way of operating for most people is to try to get all the pleasantness you can and get away from as much unpleasantness as possible. That's just normal, right? But mindfulness meditation asks us to do something else. It says, stop trying to get away and see if you can just settle down and relax and notice the changing array of pleasantness and unpleasantness. And and also, by the way, lots of stuff that happens that's just really neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's just very ordinary or kind of uh, neutral. And this idea of um, pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality is something very key uh, in the process of mindfulness meditation also goes back millennia. You know, this has been something that humans discovered at least 2,500 years ago. But I think it gets lost to us a lot as the centuries go by because it's a a hard one to get a handle on. It's, it's, It's so counterintuitive to the way we normally operate. So this is a good segue. Let's say, let's say we do uh, subscribe and we, we sit down and uh, make ourselves willing, even when there's, you know, storms in the mind and it's just, you know, a time when you'd rather be distracted and you embrace mindfulness. Um, We've talked about, or I mentioned one benefit, and I think you've mentioned some others about being less reactive, but Obviously, if you do like a Google search, the list of uh, benefits uh, can almost seem like, you know, like it is a panacea going back to what you said in the beginning, you know, decreases in this, increases in that. I know my boss told me the other day, like, oh, it's great that you meditate because that means you're going to have like the gray matter of like a teenager or something. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, what are some of the benefits? Um, Is it? Is some of it overblown or what, what are the ones that you know um, that seem to be true and maybe your experience or, or those around mm, you? Yeah, yeah. 
It's like, it's a lovely question. And I'm not going to give you the list of benefits that you could find if you Googled, because people can just Google for that. Um, you know, it's, uh, I can tell you that as I contemplate responding to the question, Josh, my heart, it, I feel viscerally warmed by the uh, I'll say blessings, you know, rather than benefits that I have received from the practice of mindfulness, uh, meditation, and associated practices like loving kindness and compassion. Um, I, I'm not sure I can really explain, you know. Um, I can say one of the things that is interesting to me about listening to the descriptions of participants who take the mindfulness-based stress reduction program over, over a number of years, I've listened to a lot of people talk about how it's affecting them. And, and very often, uh, that the warmth that I'm describing to you that I feel in my own experience of my relationship with mindfulness comes through. But another, another thing comes through that I think is interesting, and it's about an altered relationship to challenge, you know, an altered relationship to difficulty. Uh, I think probably a word you used earlier, which is resilience, is part of what people talk about. Um, so, for example, I've, I've been very moved by reports from people who have chronic pain conditions that aren't expected to get better, you know, and that are really debilitating and difficult. Um, saying utterly honestly and heartfeltly that now that they have this mindfulness practice, the pain isn't so much a problem anymore, not because it's gone away, but because somehow their relationship with it has changed. And they're not resisting it anymore. They're not blaming it. They're not making it a problem. And so suddenly something that seemed intolerable is now tolerable and, and a life can resume, you know, even without resolution of something that, you know, nobody would want to have to deal with if they could avoid it. And that's the thing. We can't avoid dealing with difficulty. But we can, I mean, this whole coronavirus thing makes it very clear that the human race can't, as a collective, avoid dealing with difficulty, right? It's like sometimes really hard stuff comes up. But we do, individually and collectively, have the capacity to hold our experiences in this wider way, you know, with... Um, uh, we use words like intimacy and wisdom, you know, like to hold our experience closely and really let it be what it is, uh, but also to recognize that it, it doesn't have to define us or confine us in the ways that we might assume if we weren't uh, coming up so close to it or if we were just defaulting to uh, our habits of behavior. I think that's a, a good answer. And, and yes, please um, feel free to Google the benefits because um, um, we're getting, you know, we're getting better content right here from the horse's mouth. So, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, 
Yeah, the internet, right? And the the sales mentality that we are all a part of these days isn't really, I think mindfulness is something of a really different order than, than that sales mentality, you know, and the, the quick fixes that we're all after. It's of a different order than, than the quick fixes as well. It takes dedication, mm-hmm. I think, it takes patience. Um, and in my experience, the rewards are... Um, are quite wonderful. Oh, well, you just read Dan Harris, right? <laughs> what does he say? 10% happier? That's his claim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually once said to one of my teachers, I said, I'm way more than 10% happier since I started mindfulness practice. And this teacher kindly responded to me, you're putting in a lot more time on it than Dan Harris is. <laughs> so I, I think that's another important thing to say, which is, in my experience, I receive greater benefits from mindfulness when I practice it more frequently and uh, and more dedicatedly, and and I experience fewer ex- felt senses of the benefit when I forget for weeks at a time. You know. So there's a, a myriad, or there's there's many different kinds of meditations. There's the one where you sit down and listen to your breath, or or an alternate um, sort of form of that where you listen to your body or, or the sounds in the room or in the world. Um, there's also ones that involve walking and movement, but there's one meditation that you just mentioned that really stands out to me. To be, and it seems almost categorically different from the others hmm. um, in my experience because it relies on the repetition of phrases. So just to give a little bit of a description of what this thing is that I'm describing, it's called a loving kindness meditation or the, I guess, metta is maybe one of those poly words. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. And it's this meditation in which you repeat silently in your head or maybe out loud if you don't care about your neighbors, uh, these, these wishes that they almost feel like prayers, but, um, you know, when, when you've done a bunch of these, oftentimes the teacher says they're, they're not prayers. They're not meant to hmm. actually um, alter the universe in a supernatural way, but they are wishes for yourself and others to be, uh, to be more peaceful, to be loved, to be safe, to be happy. And you repeat them over and over again um, for yourself, for maybe a, a person that you like, a person you don't like, a neutral person everybody all the lizards i mean it's um it's really it's incredible i think it's different both <laughs> it's all the lizards all the I lizards from the bananas i don't know but bananas and lizards you can call this episode bananas and lizards <laughs> or, or maybe i'll call my new band to that okay great <laughs> or your new album yeah yeah so so it's different both in practice because you're repeating something and it's, it's also different, I think, in results, um, at least for me, I think it has achieved in some ways the desired effect of sort of opening your heart. But it also feels, um, not to be too pejorative, but mostly sort of just tongue in cheek, it feels more like brainwashing than any of the other practices. <laughs> <laughs> so I just kind of wanted to know what your thought was about that and if my description was accurate. And, and Sure, and, and, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, again, you know, thank you for the invitation to the podcast because these are topics that are dear to my heart and I always appreciate opportunities to um 
engage with others about them in really earnest kinds of ways. So your remarks about loving kindness practice um, produce, you know, various thoughts in my mind. Yeah, and I think the the thread I would start with in responding to you is it's really about contexts and and um, how things fit together you know, and, and maybe systems, you know, to, to use a very contemporary kind of word, you know, systems. Um, so if, if we were to do like a survey of the history of meditation, my guess, and I'm not a scholar of, uh, of history, so I'm just a really dedicated practitioner of some practices that have been around for a long time. So I've got, I've been interested to expose myself to the history of these practices because I'm interested in how they can benefit me and others now. But when I look back over the history of meditation, I see lots of different systems, yeah? Uh, different schools, different approaches, right? And generally speaking, any one of those approaches, and you could say that MBSR is now becoming its own kind of approach. It happens to be quite a young one at 40 plus years old. Some of these systems are 2,500 years old, so they've had much more time to develop and change and have pieces added to them and taken away from them uh, as human beings have used them, you know, for hopefully for their benefit. So. One of the things that I see in our culture is we tend to be very focused and we want just one thing. You know, it's like, just give me the pill. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take the pill. I'll take it every day. I'll even take it if it's not tasty, if you promise me that it's going to work. But I want it just to be one thing and to be very simple. You know, you could say we're reductionists yeah, in our ways of thinking about things these days. Yeah. I think that meditation systems generally aren't very reductionist and they don't lend themselves to being reduced very easily. So because in some way the intention of meditative systems is to support a human life in being lived well, yeah, and that's just not a very simple thing in some ways. You know, it's got a lot of aspects to it. So one aspect maybe is what we might call mind and um, and thought, which we've spent quite a lot of time talking about already. And another aspect might we might call heart and emotion. You had asked, said, made a comment recently, Josh, that in MBSR you hear a lot about emotion, but not a lot about mood. And you know what's the deal with these heart states that come and linger for days on end? And how does that relate to to meditation practice. So we could say maybe that loving kindness practice is, it, it's kind of like a map for developing a relationship with your heart. Yeah. Whereas mindfulness is maybe a map for developing a relationship with your mind. And I would go so far as to say that one is not complete without the other. Yeah. I've known folks who practice mindfulness meditation for many years and at a certain point start to feel like it's very dry and not helping anymore, even though they're still doing what they are supposed to be doing. And very often, if a person in that situation shifts their practice more toward loving kindness, 
at that point, um, things will start to change. It'll warm up again, you know, and feel bright and alive. Um, so, you know, yeah, it, maybe it is different in some ways. Loving kindness is different than mindfulness. And maybe in other ways, it's complementary rather than being just different. So, you know, I think of ancient symbols like that yin-yang symbol or a tree of life kind of symbols, different ways that in different traditions, they've tried to depict that, in fact, we're in relationship with our lives. It's not just one thing. It's not just uh, an easy answer or a quick fix. It's, it's a process. So I feel like loving kindness meditation. Oh, by the way, that if you heard that on the line, it's just that's I have a bell that rings once an hour. So it means we're getting close to having spoken for an hour. Uh, so loving kindness um, is like training your heart. And it's tr so training your heart toward uh, basic friendship with life. And there's an important point to make here, which relates to your comment that teachers will say you're not trying to make these wishes come true. Um, metta is a Pali word. And as I've been taught about that word and I've come to understand it in my own experience, it doesn't actually mean a mood or an emotion. It's, it means an intention. And so an intention is a little bit different than an emotion. An intention is a direction, isn't it? It's, it you know, so I could say to you, I have the intention to be in a kind relationship with my mother you know, or my lizard or my banana, you know, and in my, within my intention to have a relationship of kindness or friendship with, say, my mother, there may be days when I feel yucky, you know, I feel depressed or angry at her, and other days where I feel a lot of warmth and care and connection with her. Both of those sets of experiences can be part of my overarching intention to have a relationship of kindness and care with her. Yeah. And so those phrases of loving kindness, it's like exercising my heart to remember that my intention is kindness. Whatever I'm feeling, you know, whether I'm feeling happy or sad, angry or um, connected. Uh, my intention is to move in a direction of, of basic respect, friendship, kindness, goodwill, whatever word you want to use. So just like repeating moments of mindfulness makes me more likely to have a future moment of mindfulness, repeating concepts that remind me of my intention uh, for basic friendship makes me more likely to be aligned with that intention in any given future moment. Wow. Yeah. That's a very thorough answer. And I, I like the distinction between uh, the heart and the mind and, and how one is sort of um, building up one and the other one is building up the other. Um, mm. Yeah. It's interesting because in the language that uh, in the language of meta and sati, which is to say loving kindness and mindfulness, uh, that culture, the, the, the group of people who were using that language didn't make a big deal of that distinction if they recognized it at all. You know, heart and mind were kind of seen as, seen as the same general territory, which I think that's interesting because it's just an indication of how human 
thought and experience changes over time. You know, now we make a, tend to make a big distinction between thought and, and heart or mind and emotion. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the history or the origins of, uh, you know, the metaphor of the heart, you know, cause obviously it's, it's in the center of our chest and it's more of a place for, you know, blood to get around than emotions to be, well, yeah, that's, that, that would open up a huge can of worms, but it is very interesting. Mm. Again, systems, right? Systems of thought. There's this phrase, mental models, you know, mental models are, um, frameworks that human beings create to try to accurately perceive what's going on, you know, and, and one mental model is that the heart and the mind are part of one domain. And another mental model is that the heart and the mind are separate. Probably both have some truth in them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to, I want to, you know, we've, I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you. Eowyn, I've just had a lot of these questions, at least the last couple that I've just been thinking about for a long time. So it's it's great to get your take on them. Um, I want to close things up with a, an opportunity to just highlight some of the work that you're doing, things you have coming up. I know you have an online retreat that's scheduled um, that's very interesting that it's online because of Corona and um, you have Monday night sits and you're doing stuff at Brown and you have this book of poetry. So any of that stuff that you want to plug or, or describe? Oh, that's so kind, Josh. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think I'm definitely really looking forward to the retreat, which is May 20th to 25th. Um, it, that'll be a first offering of an online retreat. And I, I put a fair amount of, uh, let's say, heart and mind <laughs> into creating a format that I think will help people to have access to a retreat experience in a way that is meaningful and rich, even though uh, it's online. Uh, so I welcome people to check that out. They can find that at my website, which is middlepath-healingarts.com. And there's a page for retreats. Um, yeah, the Monday night group is great. They can also find that if, you know, friends of yours, Josh, who listen to the podcast might want to join us on Monday nights. Uh, we always have a good time. Um, and then of course, all the work happening through the mindfulness center at Brown is, um, uh, rich and engaging during the coronavirus time. We're having daily meditation practices online. Uh, I lead them several times a week and colleagues of mine also lead them. Yeah, and we'll see about the poems. I, I'm very hopeful that they'll come out eventually, but things are kind of slowed down by the whole coronavirus situation. So that publishing process is in a bit of a holding pattern for now. Well, you have just released one online in this hour, so. <laughs> well, thank you for that. It's such a, a privilege and a joy to get to um, connect around things that really matter to me. So I, I thank you for the invitation to have this conversation. Quite a pleasure. My, my pleasure as well. Well, okay. Thank you so much, Eowyn. Uh, that's been tremendous. I appreciate it a lot. Mm. Yeah. All right. See you Monday, maybe. Okay. <laughs>